Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Praise God for the minister of the gift of music. To turn again to Hebrews chapter 12, no surprise there. Hebrews chapter 12, we're exploring this rich passage, really not just verse by verse, but in some ways phrase by phrase. Let me encourage you, some of you who've uh, looked at my little paper on, it's entitled Puma, uh, which stands for uh, prepare and prayer and then understand, meditate, and apply the Word of God. And in that paper, I talk about the need that we have not only to read broad portions of God's Word, as I know many of you are doing this year, as I'm doing as well, but to focus on little sections of God's Word and just pour over it and fasten it into your heart and know every detail of it. We need so much of that kind of meditation and study. So again, at the end of the chapter 11, this great record of the faith of God's people, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us pray. Lord, bless us that we will see your glory in the cross, and Lord, that we will see our shame removed in the cross. Bless us, Lord. Prepare our hearts to receive your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. In some way, uh, shame and guilt... Uh, destroys every single thing in our lives. In some way, you could say that every single human problem, every single aspect of our relationships uh, that are hurt and broken are related to shame and guilt. The psychology of the Bible is very simple. Know that you're loved by God Embrace that love in all of your brokenness and sinfulness and shame. Know that your sin is taken away in him. Be renewed in his love and then begin to give yourself away to others in love. That's the simple psychology. Now, it's complicated. It's involved. And many times we don't even realize the way hurt and pain has created patterns in our life. Patterns of self-protection and patterns of, of separation from people and the lack of involvement in those closest to us. And all we all that comes to the surface for us is that I just don't want to do this and I want to do that. And we don't realize that boiling up from inside is all this pain in the way we've responded to hurt in our lives sinfully 
in, in idolatrous ways, not depending on God in our pain, but finding ways to cope apart from God in our pain. And we bring those patterns into the Christian life. So when we talk about shame and guilt, we're just talking about the essence of the human problem. The essence of the brokenness in all of our relationships. First, we'll look at Christ's shame. Christ's shame. Those of you who saw the passion have some idea of the physical suffering involved in Jesus' crucifixion. In scourging, you know that the victim's shoulders and back and legs are literally uh, have the skin uh, torn off in pieces. And then the metal and bone of the whip digs further and further into the muscle tissue. And they tried to stop just short of death, many times failing at that. The nails actually, because the hand, the wrist was considered a part of the hand, the nails was actually put in the wrist so that the body could truly be held up, the weight of it, by that. And therefore, it hit the median nerve and pain would shoot up and down the arm into the neck and shoulders. And every movement to get another breath would shoot pain uh, throughout this area. The record of victims uncovered in archaeology show that sometimes the legs were adjusted so that the feet, so that the nail was put right inside the Achilles tendon to fasten the feet. And so this naked body was fastened into a strain on the cross so that victims would often suffer the dislocation of their shoulders, their shoulder joints and their elbow bow joints. And then with the loss of blood from scourging, dehydration, Jesus certainly would have suffered severe cramping and spasmodic contractions as he hung on the cross. And in that position, the chest muscles are paralyzed. And so victim can't draw a full breath and can't exhale. And so they breathe in short gasps and have to push themselves up by the spike on their feet and painfully feel pain in their the pain, the pain of the nerves in their arms just to breathe. And even with this, men would sometimes agonize for days. And that kind of writhing, gasping pain. And that's why, as we read in the account of the Gospels, they broke the legs uh, because it was the Sabbath. They broke the legs of the to criminals so that they would collapse and couldn't hold themselves up anymore and would quickly suffocate their bones. The bones of crucified victims verify that their legs were often broken. But for all this terrible torture, we can't imagine it. It's the shame that the writer points to. He says, who endured the cross despising, he doesn't say the pain, but he says despising the shame. Interestingly, when uh, various magistrates of the Roman Empire uh, would move around, they were accompanied by bodyguards that would protect them, that would clear the way, and sometimes they would make arrests for them. And these men were called lictors, L-I-C-T-O-R-S in our language, in the English and this, this phrase, despising the shame, recalls the ancient form of execution when a magistrate would address a lictor. He would say, lictor, go bind the hands 
veil his head, hang him on the tree of shame. Just what it was called. That was just the standard thing that was said to the lictor. Veil his head, hang him on the tree of shame. This reflects the universal response of antiquity to this repulsive punishment. It was so degrading, as you know, no Roman citizen could suffer crucifixion. When Cicero was the prosecutor of Gaius Verus, who was this notorious, corrupt governor of Sicily, of the many horrible things he did, the one thing that Cicero went after the most the thing he described as the worst of all of various crimes was that he had dared to crucify a man who was a Roman citizen. And he was described as a man who had previously never even set eyes on an object so accursed as a cross. Much less to then be the victim of a cross, this one who was so protected against it. And though his, he protested so terribly, it failed to make Verres hesitate, in Cicero's word, to inflict this most brutal and horrifying torture. So to, to suffer public crucifixion was to submerge into the lowest depths of disgrace. It was reserved, as you probably know, for the vilest of criminals and the lowest of social outcasts. It was for people considered most unfit to live. So for the victim, you are powerless as your naked body is fastened to a piece of wood and you are held up to the disgust and scorn and ridicule of people. Your bloody, stricken body sickening to look at as you ride helplessly and gasp for breath, crying and moaning, and finally dying. You worthless piece of trash. One writer says, it was a punishment for sub-men. Men who really weren't men. That's how degraded. And yet, this outward shame made as, as intense and vile as humankind was capable of, okay? Like the most horrible human shame that could be brought in another human being. But that merely reflected the infinite shame of bearing the sins of God's people. See what was happening? He, he, he was brought to court. He wasn't just ambushed along the way. He was brought through a court. He was convicted. This is to stand for the fact that he is now convicted of our sin and is going to be punished legally for our sin. And this horrible suffering of shame is a sign of the horrible shame of bearing our sin. Certainly one aspect of the torment of hell is going to be the psychological devastation. The commercial comes on, where does depression hurt? And it answer is, depression hurts everywhere. In hell, guilt will surely hurt everywhere. 
If we were to go there, shame would break in upon us and shatter our well-being. Absolutely. We would never be well again. You understand. We would never have a moment of happiness and peace and wholeness and rest. Remorse and regret would crush us forever. And in a way we don't understand, he suffered from his father the infinite shame of all of that sin. He was punished as though he was the one that did all of these vile things. He suffered that shame. So, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that he became sin for us. And so, when he bore our sin, he bore our shame. That's why another has written, the shame of the cross is infinitely more intense than the physical pain of the cross. Infinitely more intense. But isn't it interesting, it says, he despised the shame. What does that mean, that he despised the shame? Well, it means that he scorned the shame or that he disregarded the shame. As to coming into his decision to obey the Father, that shame meant nothing to him. As to coming into play to turn him away from saving us, And bearing our sin, he despised the shame. He didn't care about it. Of course, he cared in the sense that it was horrible. But it did not turn him away. So, in this context, it has a kind of positive feel. He braved the shame. He braved the shame. He was unafraid in spite of its painful character. F.F. Bruce says it was not worthy to be taken into account when it was a question of his obedience to the will of God. He didn't shrink back from suffering. He didn't shrink back from saving you in every way. To save you from what would have been your eternal shame. He did not turn back from that. He has suffered shame so that you might not suffer shame. Eternally or even now, salvation means that your guilt and shame is taken away. He braved the the shame so that you could be saved from the shame. The old uh, commentator, John Brown, says he stood steadily to his purpose of saving you at whatever the price. Isn't that beautiful? He stood steadily the purpose of saving you at whatever the price. Which brings us to our shame. You may feel the greatest shame. Shame because you know you've hurt someone, betrayed someone, neglected someone, ignored someone. And these could be many someones, of course. Horrible to someone. Wish terrible things against someone. You've thought shameful things and done shameful things in secret. You've ached to exalt yourself and have everything for yourself. You've ached at times to be the center of the world. You've done so many foolish, destructive things that make you wince and hang your head. And some of them are still with you. There's so much work to be done. And you think, it shouldn't be this way. I should have taken care of these things. I should be further ahead. We're just stricken with this. Shame. And 
for good reason. We're, we're shameful people. We would be ashamed for anybody to see what we really are, what we've really been. But isn't it amazing that Jesus not only sees your shame that you know, but he sees it, sees it to its depth? He sees how shameful what you've done is. He sees that it's more disgraceful than you'll ever know. That's how much he knows about your shame. But it doesn't matter because he bore that shame. He bore that shame. He was so horribly shamed so that he might suffer our shame and remove our shame. He takes it away. When he takes our sin away as far as the east is from the west, he takes our shame away as far as the east is from the west. When he bore our sin in his body on the cross, he bore our shame in his body on the cross. And so you won't shock Christ with your shame. You won't turn him away. No matter how you may be debased and torn by sin and guilt, without flinching, his grace and mercy come and embrace you. He forgives you and heals you and bears you up. So much so that this writer of Hebrews writes earlier, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And that word means siblings in the original. Uh, that's the way they used it. So we could easily say he's not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. That's how much your shame is removed. And then, this brings us to this. Our shame becomes then our glory. Or you might say, what was shame for us in our sin, looking to Christ, what was appeared shameful becomes our glory. You, you think of Paul, this zealot, madly persecuting Jesus and madly persecuting his cross. And you can imagine how offended he would be. Jesus, the champion of God, this man who is accursed of God, this man who is so openly shamed by God. Now you're saying he is the champion of the Jews. No, we have to wipe this out completely. He was the curse of God, not the favorite of God. Certainly not the savior of God's people. Why, he delivered no one. He got himself killed. And God bore testimony by allowing him to be degraded publicly on a cross. He did everything he could to wipe out the name of this Jesus. And yet this Paul said, that Jesus, risen from the dead, met me on the road to Damascus. And Paul was so radically changed that he began to proclaim this Jesus, proclaim his cross. Take glory in the cross. He would embrace the cross. He wanted to be associated with this crucified one because then he saw this was God manifesting the glory of his love, not saving physical Israel, as I thought, but saving us from the wrath and judgment of God. So this shameful cross is nothing less than the shining forth of the glory of of God. In the great, great place of human weakness, of Christ's weakness, He is Lord rescuing His people. Isn't that amazing? As He is bloody and degraded, 
if we have spiritual eyes to see, is the most glorious manifestation of God on earth. What a paradox. So, later the writer of Hebrews says, the bodies of those animals, speaking of Old Testament sacrifice, whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. And that was true. They were taken outside the camp to, to be burned. A picture of casting away that worthless thing that has borne sin, that has become sin. And it's no longer worthy of fellowship, no longer can belong to the camp. It is cast away and burned. So he, he, he starts there and he says, So, just so, in the same way, Jesus also suffered outside the gate, outside the fellowship of people, outside community, outside of humanity, like a sub-man. In order to sanctify the people through his own blood, and then what is our response? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So you see, his shame becomes our glory. It becomes the place where we want to stand and be next to him and bask in his love and be benefited and changed and forgiven through that work, even if it means that we lose everything in life. Even if it means that the world that hated him will hate us, we say, fine, that's fine. This is where I stand. Associated with this glorious Christ. Who died and bore my shame. For if I leave him, I still have my shame. But he takes away my shame. John Calvin. If the Son of God, who ought to be adored by everyone, willingly submitted himself to such hard struggles, who of us would dare to refuse to undergo the same with him? We are companions of the Son of God. I love that phrase. He who was so far above us was willing to come down to our condition to encourage us by his example. Thus I say, we gain new heart when otherwise we would melt away and dissolve into despair. Dr. Hughes writes, When they become weary on the way and grow faint at heart because there seems no end to the trials they have to endure, let them consider him. In his book on America's independence, entitled 1776, David McCullough, tells about a 16-year-old man named John Greenwood who was small for his size and looked more like he was probably 12 or 13 years old, but He used to live in Boston, but had gone to live with his uncle in Maine. But he walked all the way down through what was mainly wilderness, 150 miles, to sign up with the army in Boston. And shortly after signing up, Bunker Hill broke out in a horrible, horrible fight at Bunker Hill, as some of you know. So they began to lay out bodies on the commons in Boston, and he took off down the road uh, toward the battle 
at Bunker Hill. And as he continued running, he came past wagons carrying more casualties and wounded men struggling to get back. And it says that terrified, he said, I wish I had never enlisted. He was just terrified seeing all of these wounded men and realizing that's what he was walking into. But then he saw a lone soldier coming down the road. A Negro man, this is him writing, wounded in the back of his neck, passed me, and his collar being open and he not having anything on except his shirt and trousers, I saw the wound quite plainly and the blood running down his back. I asked him if it hurt him much, as he did not seem to mind it. He said no, he was only to get a plaster put on it and meant to return. You cannot conceive what encouragement this immediately gave me. I began to feel brave and like a soldier from that moment. And fear never troubled me afterward during the whole war. Christ presents himself as the one wounded for you. For you. Look to him, the wounded one, for you. And then he promises, I will give you my spirit. And he's not a spirit of fear. He's a spirit that will enable you to endure. Keep your eyes upon Christ, who bears your shame away. Let us pray. Lord, we honor you and praise you, mighty King. You have delivered us from sin and shame. You have suffered for us. May we, by your grace, come outside the gate and embrace you gladly and bear your reproach gladly and give ourselves freely to the ministry of love in Christ's name, whatever it costs us. May we see you as the one wounded for us May we consider you carefully, as the writer says here, who suffered such hostility against himself. Oh, Lord, that we ourselves then would not grow weary or faint-hearted. Thank you for your ministry. Thank you that you will give us grace. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.